Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Sunday, November 13th. Where to begin today's show? Yes, it's mid-November, but there are still countless storylines for us to monitor on this podcast. A couple we had on our minds on Sunday. How about the start of the ATP Tour Finals? Group play officially underway. I suppose each of our two singles results on Sunday were a bit surprising. Now, Rafael Nadal has not played a ton of tennis since the U.S. Open. He's been banged up, nursing a couple of injuries, as well as a newborn, as he is now a father as well. Shout out to the Nadal family, but was a tough start for Rafa at these ATP Tour Finals. He was, dare I say, dominated by Taylor Fritz in match number one of his event. Fritz, a straight set winner, did not face a break point as such, went unbroken in his straight set victory. First time for Rafa since the 2019 ATP Tour Finals that he's failed to conjure a single break point in a match. Now, a lot of credit belongs to Taylor Fritz. I want to explain why this matchup is actually pretty decent for Fritz, regardless of Nadal's condition. That said, certainly a struggle for Rafa in match number one. We want to break down why he struggled, talk about what maybe we should expect from him here this week on today's show. I say we, it's just me. I'm going to be pondering for all of you, I suppose, opining on some thoughts from Sunday's matches. Hopefully you all will be willing to tolerate that. I do hope to have a fun guest on the show this week, a new guest making a mini break podcast debut, I guess. I got the chance to know why I was in while I was in is how you say that in English, Los Angeles, working for Tennis Channel. So excited to have that guest on the show later this week to talk ATP Tour Finals. But of course, I want to break down Fritz Nadal, surprising result number one on the day. Of course, surprising result number two, Kasparud's victory over Felix Ogier Aliassime. Now, why is it surprising? Of course, it's because Felix has been so damn good down the home stretch of this 2022 season. And with all due respect to Casper, since making the U.S. Open final, he has not been that good. The results certainly indicating that. That said, Casper got back to the basics in his straight set victory over FAA was even better than Felix on the serve, on the plus one, just playing first strike tennis. And I want to remind all of you of the statistics behind Casper's 2022 season, because of course, the broad takeaway when watching Casper play is how well-rounded he plays. Yes, the backhand sits a little bit short. Yes, relative to the forehand, it is a weakness, but by no means is it a glaring hole. That said, I feel like sometimes Casper's strengths go under, not un, but underappreciated. Certainly his prowess on the serve on the forehand, the statistics reflect 
countless successes throughout the course of this season. His result against Felix it was another one of those successes. Want to get into the mechanics of Casper's win. Why it was actually a glass half full sort of loss for Felix to kick off his ATP Tour Finals campaign. That said... ATP Tour Finals, not the only storyline on my mind today. We got to get into a couple of things just to wrap up storylines from last week. Each of them involve young Americans. Now, the headline probably belongs to Brandon Nakashima. Nakashima, a former UVA standout, I will point out was excellent all week long. Undefeated 5-0 run to capturing the ATP Next Gen, or I should say Next Gen ATP Finals. He kind of, little highway robbery in sets number one and two on his way to a straight set victory in the final over Yuri Lechechka. Now, if you want to hear about Nakashima's group play, go to Friday's mini break podcast. You want to hear about his semifinal victory over Jack Draper. Check out yesterday's show. I want to focus just on the finals for Brandon Nakashima. I know I promised on yesterday's podcast I would avoid a 15-minute Soliloquy is the wrong word. I suppose monologue's the best word on Nakashima, and I'm not going to do that 15-minute bit again, but I will run through those stats one more time since the French Open as Brandon was just so exceptional down the season's last, I mean, throughout the course, really, of the final two-thirds of the season. It was a six-month run for Brandon to establish himself as a top 50 player. And see, I'm already getting into the monologue once again, but just put a final bow on that next-gen finals run. And then the match of the day was not in Italy. It was not Fritz Nadal. It was not Felix Root. It was not either of the two exceptional doubles matches we saw on the day there either. No, the match of the day happened in Knoxville. It was Ben Shelton, 7-6 in the third win over Chris Eubank. Shelton now back-to-back challenger winner, one in Charlottesville last week, now a winner in Knoxville here this past week. Beaked to Eubanks in back-to-back finals as well as now in a commanding position for the Australian Open wildcarder, I suppose, is the first issue, and we can I'll re-explain the Australian Open wildcard challenge to all of you listeners in case you're unaware of what that wildcard challenge is. But Shelton now in a position to win that wildcard, get an automatic bid into the Australian Open main draw. But guess what, folks? He might not need it as he's up to number 108 following this back-to-back challenger title run, following his back-to-back challenger title runs is how you say that. Um, By the way, I know that's been a common refrain. That's how you speak in English. It's just a little bit easier for me to try and correct myself than point out all these edits for super producer Daniel Westoff. In the end, my life is all about making his life easy, so I hope you all will indulge me with that phrase for a bit longer. I hope you all will indulge me in a little more Ben Shelton talk as well because he's 108 in the world on the back of six months of pro tour play, maybe even fewer, like five months of pro tour play, has nothing to defend from January to May next season. Nothing. He wins three matches. He's probably in the top 100, folks. Like It's just a mathematical reality. It's something we should explore here on today's show, so we're going to. I also want to talk a little bit more about Chris Eubanks because he does continue to get better. And Eubanks, 26 years old, has not cracked the top 100 yet in his career. He's on the precipice of doing so. And even in making the final in Knoxville, de- defended a lot of points as he won this Knoxville excuse me, challenger title last season. 
we got to get into the Knoxville final. 7-6 in the third. Ben hits the shot of the day on match point again. We'll get into all of it here today, but that's the rundown. Seven minutes to explain what we're going to be talking about. Fritz Nadal, Felix Rude, Nakashima in the next-gen finals, Ben Shelton in Knoxville. I know there was a WTA 125K event. I know the Calgary Challenger is something I talked about yesterday, but those four things in particular are going to be my focus on today's show. And again, why did it take me seven minutes to get through this introduction? I still don't know where to begin today's show. We probably have to start with Nadal, so we'll go with the ATP Finals first. But again, a lot of good tennis for us to break down. Of course, the reason we're able to break it down day in, day out here on this show is because of the support we get from all of you listeners and because of the support we get from our dear friends at Tennis Point. You all know the deal, tennis-point.com, for the latest and greatest equipment at all of of the best prices. You go there today. Use our promo code CR15. Not only will you get 15% off all orders, you'll get free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls, tennis-point symbol, not the spelling, tennis-point.com. Let them know we sent you there by using that promo code CR15. With that said... Let's start today's show, or I suppose continue today's show, with a little Fritz Nadal talk. Now, again, it was not Rafa's best day at the office, and I do think some of the service stats are a bit misleading. You look for Rafa throughout the course of the match, makes 71% of his first serves, wins 76% of his first serve points, but a lot of that success came in set number one, where he went 24 of 27 on first serve points and even his 6 of 12 on second serve points 50% win percentage significantly better than the 2 of 8 he goes in set number 2 and you know for Rafa all match long Everything was a little bit shorter in the court. Now, set number one, he did a very good job of hitting his spots on the serve, getting Fritz stretched outside the alley, plus one ball to the open court. Taylor's got become a better mover, but with how efficient Rafa is with his first strike, the depth of each shot, how well-placed each shot is, the precision to attack the open space, get Taylor stretched. Again, Rafa was really good on serve in set number one by making life easy for himself, making 70% of his first serves, winning 89% of his first serve points. He dropped nine points on serve in the first set, faced three break points, was able to fight them all off. Now, the statistician was very generous throughout the course of this match. It says Rafa, 13 winners against one unforced error in set number one. That's just not true. Um, So I'm going to discard the unforced error number. But 13 winners versus Fritz's 16 was a pretty balanced first set. That said, again, Rafa, when he had success in this match, it was behind the first serve. Rafa's When Rafa's in rhythm... I mean, for 15 years, we know what that looks like. Maybe even north of 15 now, what, 18, 17 years, however long he's been Rafa. That said, boy, did he struggle in his return games. And I alluded to this earlier for the first time since the 2019 ATP Finals. No coincidence, I think, that it was at this event, given the indoor hardcourt surface that it is played on. Uh, Rafa goes without a break point in this match. Taylor dropped just six points on serve in set number one. And, you know, beyond 
just opening up easy attacking opportunities for himself with that first serve. Rafa sprayed a lot of returns a little bit long or just a little bit wide or just into the net tape. Everything was a little bit off. Also, I suppose, I, I don't know why that's the segue I went with there, but also Rafa was leaving the ball short in the court. And why I think this is a good matchup for Taylor, A, coming into the day, he was 10-5 and five against lefties here in this 2022 season. But the ball just sat up in Taylor Fritz's strike zone because Rafa does hit such heavy topspin on the ball. And Taylor being 6'4", 6'5", that ball is now right at his hip or right out in front, especially when Rafa's leaving the ball short. And now Taylor can just hit over the top of the ball and come down on it and let Rafa spin, keep that ball inside the court. And that's what Taylor did. He consistently kept the pressure on Rafa by taking that ball a little bit early, a little bit inside the court, changing direction on Rafa, forcing Rafa to be the one consistently hitting when his feet weren't set. Again, outside of the moments when Rafa looked in rhythm on serve, that was really it. Rafa either made the first serve and hit a good first strike or Taylor won the point. And the rally analysis indicates as much. And this stat, I really like. You look at the shots, you know, 0-4. to four, A, Fritz outplayed Rafa still, 151-42. to 42, But how you know it was a tough day at the office for Rafa and the shots that went 5-plus. Taylor Fritz won 19 of the 5-plus shot rallies. Rafa won 14. Like, again, and excuse me, 51-43 on those 0-4 to four shot rallies. But Taylor Fritz is winning the long rallies. It's a good day at the office for Taylor, who, again, did make the right tactical adjustment to take the ball a little bit earlier and just keep Rafa on the run. Don't allow Rafa time when he hits his slice to reset in the center of the court. Don't allow Rafa time to be in rhythm and hit two balls or three balls uh, on the same half of the baseline because when he does that, now you're playing on his rhythm. Now he's moving you around the court, and when he does that, he still looks like Rafael Nadal, but Fritz made it very hard for him to do those things, and you know, the thing I keep coming back to for Taylor Fritz in what is obviously a career season for the now 25-year-old Fritz, obviously playing in his first ATP Tour Finals, is going to end the season top 10 uh, no matter what this year. Fritz is also one of just five players to rank top 20 in both hold and break percentage this season. And that list is Djokovic, Medvedev, Alcaraz, Zverev, and Fritz. That's the list. It's a really good list for Taylor Fritz to find himself on. Of course, you look now for Taylor here overall in this 2022 season, 44 and 19 overall on the year. You look for him now nine and six against top 20 opponents and to have nine victories against top 20 opponents. Now you look for Taylor Fritz. It's very high on the ATP stats leaderboard. In fact, here in the 2022 season, you look amongst players, top 20 victories, Taylor Fritz his nine top 20 victories uh, would rank with Tommy Paul, Daniil Medvedev as tied for eighth overall amongst top 50 players. It's very good year for Taylor Fritz, who obviously wins the Indian Wells title earlier this season. And, you know, you look for Fritz. I mean, he's in the ATP Tour Finals. Makes second weeks at Grand Slams, you know, round of 16 at the Australian Open quarterfinals for him at Wimbledon. Yeah, disappointing loss to Brandon Holt at the U.S. Open, but then he goes and wins the Tokyo title here in October. And now, despite the disappointing three-set loss to Simone in Paris, a really nice bounce back for Fritz. 
who again kept pace on servant set number one and then you know wore Rafael Nadal down here on these indoor hard courts and again you look for Rafa does any of this matter no not really. Rafa ends the year with two slam, or two more slam titles, 22 slams overall. Obviously, that one slam lead on Novak Djokovic. Big picture, that's all that matters coming out of this season that he still looked as excellent as he did. And yes, there was a moment in that Djokovic match where you thought at the French Open Djokovic could beat him, but Rafa ends up winning out. And, you know, Rafa to dare I say, destroy Kasparu the way he did in the French Open final to come back from two sets down and almost being broken in the third set to beat Medvedev he wait, the way he did. That's exceptional. That's what you remember from this season, not a first-round loss in three sets to Tommy Paul in Paris or the now straight-set loss to Taylor Fritz at the U.S. Open, uh, ATP Tour Finals, excuse me, nor the Tiafa loss, really, at the U.S. Open. Those aren't the things you're going to remember this Rafa season for. That said... Yeah, it's going to be a struggle for Rafa if this is how the ball, if his ball continues to sit up like this, even in facing now two opponents in his group who his game is very well suited to beat, whether it be, you know, we saw what Rafa did to Casper Ruud in the French Open final. I know it's an indoor hardcore, but can't Rafa employ those exact same tactics with success on this surface? Absolutely. You know, same thing for Felix. You get him stretched on that backhand side. Yeah, he's gotten a lot better at it, but we just saw what Casper Ruud did to him with relentless first strike aggression. That said, is Rafa executing the first strike well enough, consistently enough, and is he going to be able to sustain that level long enough to defend against the relentless first strike of Felix and Casper? Because, yeah, Felix and Casper don't have the backhands that Taylor did to neutralize Rafa's forehand, to take that forehand early whenever it sat short uh, and really do damage off that backhand wing. That's not going to be Felix or Casper. That said... Both of them are far more active with their feet, or at least better with their feet, and they're going to find forehands whenever Rafa leaves the ball short. And look, dare I say right now, is there anything more dangerous than Felix Ogier Aliasim sitting on a forehand on the ad side? Maybe not. Obviously, Kasper Ruud rose to number two in the world off of his ad side forehand success. So those are still, yes, structurally, Rafael is very, Rafael, I almost called them, Rafa is very well suited to expose the weaknesses, dare I say, or shortcomings in both Rude and Felix's game, but not if he plays like this. Not if the ball's hanging short. Not if, again, the second serve feels so attackable and Felix Casper able to at least, at a very least, neutralize things off that return. If they're able to attack the return, like Fritz was able to attack the return, again, Rafa might be in some trouble. That said, neither Rude nor FAA ranked top 25 in break percentage this season. Now, both of them are higher in hold percentage than Taylor Fritz. They're both top 10 in hold percentage. And I do think, again, Rafa having not generated any break points against Taylor Fritz, Felix Casper are going to each have success on the serve. That's the problem for Rafa, especially early on. Is he going to be able to continue to keep pace, not build first set deficits in all these matches by coming out a little slow. It's going to be interesting. It's going to be very interesting, and it's something I look forward to exploring again, Rafa's level. Now, legacy-wise, he doesn't have this title in his book, in his trophy case. It doesn't matter. He has 22 slams. It would be nice if he wins this event, but, you know, again, 
if he's healthy and can play three full matches, I actually think that's the big thing for Rafa is, okay, I played November tennis at age 36. That's a win. And I think that's the key for Rafa is get through this event healthy. Making the semifinals is absolute. If he makes the semifinals, that's a win. If he wins this event, that's a huge bonus. And I think, you know, again, anything, him completing three matches, that's the bar for me that he has to clear. Maybe that's a little bit low. And maybe some Rafa fans will say that's too low. Maybe some Djokovic or Federer fans will say, why are you grading him on a lower standard? I'm not. He's not the best player entering this event. I mean, he just lost to Taylor Fritz, who is the lowest ranked player in this event. But Djokovic was always the favorite, and Medvedev and even Felix, given his recent form, all looked better than Rafa coming into this event. Now, Taylor getting the win coming off of that Simone loss, again, a little bit surprising, particularly given how few breakpoint opportunities there were in set number one. Set number one, I know it was 7-6. It was not fun to watch. I actually thought the quality of tennis in set number two was better because Fritz had Rafa on the run, and at least the points got a little bit more physical from there. But credit to Taylor, man. He was really, really good today in what has been a career year for the 25-year-old American. And again, Fritz, great day. Nakashima, great day. Shelton, great day. It's November, folks, and American men's tennis is still having great days. That's really good. That's not something we've had Certainly in my five-year tenure here, I mean, we've talked challengers because Knoxville, Charlottesville, Champaign, that's always been a part of the calendar, but we're talking ATP Finals success. We're talking next-gen Finals success. We're talking Ben Shelton making a top 100 debut at 20 years old. It's good times in American men's tennis, and I think those good times are going to continue to keep rolling. That said, let's Veer away from the American men's tennis from a second. Let's talk about Felix versus Casper Ruud. Look, one break of serve in this match. Casper a 7-6-6-4 victory. By the way, Fritz 7-6-6-1. I don't know if I said that score out loud at any point, but Casper 7-6-6-4 win over Felix. The break came for Casper 4-3 seconds or 3 all seconds and he breaks 4-4-3. Casper had one break point chance. He converted it. Felix had no breakpoint chances, obviously wasn't able to convert any, but Felix, 14 aces, won 32 of 38 first serve points. It's an 84% clip. He dropped just 15 points on serve in, what, 12 plus 5? So 11 service games, 12 points dropped on serve. Felix played really well today. You look for Casper, five aces, one double fault, but made 66% of his first serves, won 75% of his first serve points, perhaps even more impressively, 78% of his second serve points. And again, 11 service games, he dropped 16 total points on serve. Serve bot tennis is an overused phrase at this point. First strike tennis was the theme of this match. And you look for each of them. There are 126 total points played in this match. 45 of them. 43 of them, excuse me. 43 of 126. So about a third of them, you know, one point more than a third of the points in this match were were over five shots. Two-thirds of the points were four shots or fewer. And look, Casper won 44% of the uh, 44 zero to four shot rallies, excuse me. Felix won 37. Casper was a little bit better behind his first serve than Felix was. Felix really made 
four four forehand errors describe uh, define this match. Two in the breaker from Felix, particularly the one six four on the set point. Um, and then two in the service game, he got broken by Casper, where Casper also came up with a pretty good return to generate one of those forehand errors. But it really was like a four-point difference in this match. In fact, total points won. I know it was six and four. Casper, 66, 52% to Felix's 60, 48%. Felix hit 30 winners in this match. You know, Casper hit 19. Felix had plenty of plus one success. Plenty of opportunities to swing through the forehand. When he got Casper really pinned on that ad side, forcing Casper hit backhands, Felix was so aggressive with his footwork, unloading inside in, inside in, inside out forehand combinations, or inside out, inside in, inside out, I should say. There are times when it was untouchable. And Felix, a really efficient, I don't think he was 13 of 13 at the net. Again, the statistician at the ATP Finals is being very generous. But Felix was very efficient moving forward, as was Casper. Felix played one bad service game. Like, I know astute analysis, Alex. This is what we come to the podcast for. I don't know how else to say it. Three all. He made a couple of forehand errors. Casper was there to capitalize. Casper did a very good job. Two things stood out from a tactical standpoint. A, and we talk about this all the time, players with these big forehands like a Felix, like the J.J. Wolves, like the Karen Hatchinovs of the world, you can't be afraid to play through them because all those guys are going to be trying. I don't know why I included Hatchinov on the list, but... You know, the Felixes, the Caspers of the world, they're going to be trying to cheat over on that ad side of the court. You have to be willing to take the space they're given to you. You have to be willing to go through that deuce side of the court. Force them to come up with something special on their forehand on the run. Casper forced Felix to do that, and it generated some errors off of Felix's forehand wing. On the flip side, and this is part two of what Casper did well, oh my God, does he hit his on-the-run forehand spectacularly, whether it's down the line, whether it's the short angle cross, depth cross. I mean, that ball is special. It, it, it just, you know, again, generated a couple of errors out of Felix in critical moments when Felix tried to test that Casper forehand and he was able to come up with the goods. I believe won one of the three all game points. He was able to do exactly that. And again, it was one break point, one break of serve, couple of bad forehands and a breaker. That's what separated these two. I think for an ATP Tour Finals debut, Felix played pretty well. I think he can hold his head high, particularly given Rafa lost in straight sets. It feels like the opening is still there for Felix, although he lost to Fritz earlier this year, I suppose, in, what was that, Laver Cup? Or not Laver Cup, ATP Cup, and, I mean, Rafa's Rafa. But Felix is far from out of it, particularly if he sustains this level. And I don't need to go through the Felix stats, how good he's been. Do I for, for, for uh, Felix since the end of the U.S. Open? Just how outstanding Felix. You know what? Let's do it. And let's exclude both Davis and Laver Cup since the start of October. So since Astana on October 3rd, you look for Felix 16-2 and two overall. Wins over Alcaraz, Nakashima, Musetti, Evans, Kasmanovic, Tiafo, Holger Runa. Um, yeah, it's been a pretty good run for Felix. Now 16-3, and three, excuse me, overall. And, you know, again, he's holding over 90% of the time. That doesn't change for him, having been broken once here today. He holds for over 90% of the time over a month stretch. If he sustains that next year, he's a top five server. And the top five servers, again, it's just he's a better returner than the rest of them. And he can do a little bit more from the baseline, far more complete, you feel like, than 
an Isner, an Opelka, certainly. Kyrgios Berrettini becomes an interesting conversation, but that's the neighborhood you feel like Felix should be hanging out with, and I've always thought Berrettini isn't the worst comparison. Tsitsipas isn't the worst comparison for a player like Felix. Anyways, I don't know why we're spending so much time on Felix when, again, you look for Casper. He did kind of need this win. For what it's worth for Casper, excluding Davis Laver Cup since the end of the U.S. Open, he's 2-4 and four overall. Losses to Nishioka in three. Munar and straights on a hard court. That's unacceptable. 4-4 four and four to Wawrinka and Basel, fine. 6-4 in the third to Musetti in Paris is not a bad loss. But again, Nishioka, Munar, Wawrinka, that's a tough three-match run for Casper. And that's why he kind of needed this win over Felix. And to dominate as well as he did with his forehand to not be broken. You look for Casper, I mentioned it. He's holding 85.7% of the time here this season. That number will probably go up maybe to 859 uh, following his run here today, going unbroken, not facing a break point. But you look for Casper here overall on the season. Casper uh, currently ranks, excuse me, no longer 10th. He ranks 11th in holds percentage here on the 2020, in the 2022 season. His ability to hit the first forehand to the open court, hit it inside out, play first strike. He's a, he's a good volleyer. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. You just, you, that's not what stands out to you because of how good he is on the run, because of how well he moves the ball around the court. You don't view him as a guy who plays aggressive first strike tennis, maybe as obviously as it is for a guy like Felix, but that's really what Casper does, and he's really good at it when he's clicking on all cylinders. And again, it's a really good win for Casper. And the big thing for Casper now, who's obviously had a very, very good season, and he's done it back-to-back. You look for him last year, 57-17, and 17, 48, uh, 49 now, and 20 here this season. Uh, you look for him against top 20 opponents. Casper now 12-7 and seven against the top 20 overall this season. That's a top five number against top 20 opponents. Uh, it's the efficiency against all level of opponent, uh, regardless of the ranking. And the big thing for Casper is he played the tour finals last year, got wins of Rublev and Nori to make the semifinals. He has the experience where Felix didn't, Fritz doesn't. You know, again, Casper's been here before. He showed that in match number one. Very impressed by Rude, who will have the upside debate about him, I suppose, during the off season. I'll put that on the list of November pods is what is Casper Rude's ceiling? Rude's ceiling at this point. I think that's a good question for us to ponder. Is he a definitive tier one? Is he kind of the top of tier two moving forward? Will he win a slam? Let's have that debate when we have some time here as November comes to a close. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. With that said, let's move away from the tour finals. Again, Fritz, straight set winner. Rude, straight set winner. Let's go to the next-gen finals. Put a bow on the branded 
Brandon Nakashima 2022 season. Boy, you look for Brandon 32 and 14 since the start of the French Open, won 70% of his matches through the final two-thirds of the season, held serve 87.4% of the time during that stretch. That would be a top-five number if extended across an entire season. By the way, he did it at the ATP level, so I don't have to adjust it for level of competition. Now, I will say, adjusting for level of competition, Brandon 28-3, and during this run against opponents ranked outside the top 50. If you don't have a weapon to hurt him, if you can't do something elite or sustain a really high level for a really long time, Brandon's just going to kill you. Held 90.9% of the time against opponents ranked outside the top 50 down the season's home stretch. Again, that would be a top three number. Also would break serve 23.2% of the time against those opponents. That's a top 25 number. So he would be one of the 11 players, if you include that, uh, to rank top 25 in both hold and break percentage. That said, 4-11 and 11 against the top 50. The hold percentage drops by 9.8% to 81.1. The break percentage drops by just a little 13.7% to 9. He's only breaking top 20 opponents 9.5% of the time. Obviously, that's unacceptable. But, and here's here we go full circle. Did you watch him return against Lachetka in his 4-3-4-3-4-2 win? And you look for Brandon, who dropped a couple of sets in his opening round match, dropped just one set over his final four, comes back from a breakdown in set number one against Lachetka. Really was highway robbery as Lachetka, oh my God, was Lachetka hitting the first strike. Huge coming out of the gates, just connecting with every forehand perfectly. And, you know, again... Brandon was kind of leaving the ball short. He came out a little bit tentative, a little bit defensive. Lechechka made him pay. But then serving for the set, Lechechka blinked, and Brandon was right there to take advantage of it. Brandon hits two really good forehand passing shots in the breaker, takes it 7-5. There's your first set. And for me, what was so impressive, you know, same thing, second set. Brandon fight you know, was down 6-4. In the second set breaker, fights off a couple of set points, ends up winning it 8-6. You felt like he should have been down two sets to love, having gone down 2-0 in set one in this shortened format and being down 6-4 in the second set breaker. Took them both. And then, you know, 2-3, match on the line. We've talked about that break percentage for Brandon and how he's been an aggressive returner trying to be inside the baseline, taking things early to develop that reflex and skill. But he played defense against Lahechka and really just focused on putting that ball in play, forcing Yuri to continue to sustain his excellence. And they played some physical tennis down the home stretch, but a couple of errors from Lahechka serving for to for the third set breaker, and all of a sudden Brandon's your next gen champion. And again, you look at the list of next gen champions and what they've gone on to do. Um, not only you know immediately, I suppose, following their run of success at these next gen finals, but what they've gone on to do over the course of the subsequent seasons. I mean, obviously, the first two years, Hyun Chung, Stefano Tsitsipas making the Australian Open semis right after winning their next gen titles was exceptional. But let's not forget. Tsitsipas ends 2018 top five. Sinner 
wins the 2019 Next Gen Finals. Now, 2020, we're going to throw out because of the COVID year, but where did he end 2021? Top 10 in the world. Carlos Alcaraz wins the 2021 Next Gen Finals. He won the U.S. Open and ended this year world number one. So I think we have to keep an eye out on Brandon, who, again, has like three wins to defend through the first four and a half months of the season. He's 49 in the rankings right now. Brandon could make a top 25 appearance if he has a strong first three months, a good Indian Wells or Miami, a solid showing at the Australian Open. He's made the third round of three straight slams. He does that in Australia. He's certainly top 40. Again, a couple of wins, Indian Wells, Miami. Now he's sniffing top 35, a seed come the French Open, and you know then the real point defense starts. But Man, credit to Brandon Nakashima. Again, broken once by Lachetchka, but won 85.4% of his first serve points, made 65% of his first serves, double-digit aces for Nakashima again. He was excellent throughout the course of his run in um, Milan. And, you know, again, credit to Yuri Lachetchka, who makes the finals, who has serious weapons, as we've discussed all week long. It's going to be interesting to see what he does with the momentum. We might see him again uh, on the challenger level here this season. But with that said, final thought of the day belongs to Ben Shelton. Ben Shelton, your Knoxville challenger champion, a 6-3-1-6-7-6 victory over Chris. Eubanks. I mean, the big moments of the match, 5-4, third set breaker, 4-5, I should say, Eubanks. It's good first serve, good first strike, comes in behind it, shanks the first forehand volley, leaves it short. Ben's able to track down the volley, get a lob over Eubanks' head. Eventually, you know, Ben draws the error from Chris, and then 6-4 was just Ben Shelton magic. You know, Eubanks stretches him out wide with the first serve, then Ben in on-the-run forehand magic passing shot for his second ball, short angle cross-court to clinch a second consecutive win over Eubanks in a challenger final. And now you look for Ben Shelton, 20 years old, 108 for Shelton in the live rankings. You look for Ben now, 35-11 and 11 overall this season, 30-8. and 8 at the challenger level where he's holding 86.8% of the time. And obviously that would be a top 10 number, but you'd have to adjust for level of competition. Now, again, 30 and eight at the challenger level, seven and zero in quarterfinals, five finals for him. Now two titles back to back in Charlottesville, Knoxville. He takes the lead in the U S open Australia. I should say the Australian open, excuse me, wild card challenge and the Australian Federation, French tennis Federation, US, uh, USTA, for those that don't know, offer reciprocal wild cards to one another's events. So what there is is there's a wild card challenge for each of them. For the U.S. players, you play three. You know, you three. Uh, you use excuse me four weeks of tournaments. You use your best three events. Whichever player accumulates the most points in three of those four events ends up receiving the wild card into the reciprocal event. So for the Aussies, it's into the French and U.S. French, U.S. and Aussies, Americans, French and Australia. Hopefully that made sense to all of you. The point is now Ben Shelton's won two challenger titles. He's up by I believe sixty points on Chris Eubanks with just the champagne challenger left to play. Chris probably needs to win it and he needs someone to knock out Ben early in the event if he wants to snag that wild card. But look, Ben may not need it. You look for Ben Shelton now, 35 and 11 overall on the year, up to number 108 in the live rankings, has zero things to defend through the first half 
of the season. His first registered match this year, May 30th, Little Rock Challenger round of 32. Five months of at 108. I mean, he's gonna get it. He's gonna get into the Australian Open main draw, folks. I'm, I'm predicting it now. He's winning this wild card challenge. He wins one match there. He's top 100. You know, he's getting into main draws. Certainly of Delray Beach, of Dallas, of Houston. You know, main draw probably. Maybe a wild card into Indian Wells. Maybe a wild card into Miami. One of those events. Who knows? Maybe he gets in through qualifying also as well. Ben Shelton top 50 watches on because he's got nothing to defend through the first four months of the season. And again, let's say he is top 100, which he will almost assuredly be come the French Open. Now he's in a French Open main drum. Boy, am I excited to see Ben play on clay, which for what it's worth, again, he's played 36 match, excuse me, he's played 46 matches this year, 35 and 11 overall. All of them have been on hard courts. We need to see Bennett play on clay before we truly know what his ceiling is. But with how twitchy, springy, athletic, jumpy his ball is as well, I think he's going to have success on clay. And I mean, again, 35 and 11 overall in the season. He's holding 87.7% of the time. Now, the break percentage, 21.6. It's lower than the average top 50 player. But with how well he holds serve, he's able to take a few more chances uh, as a return. And what I really liked, again, against Eubanks is his willingness to go 12 feet behind the baseline and just get a clean rip on the return to force Eubanks to have to hit a better than average first strike. And ultimately, that percentage of getting returns in play even if they weren't the heaviest that's what went out for Ben down the home stretch of the third set and you know again two straight weeks two straight titles 108 in the rankings now shout out to Chris Eubanks who of course is currently sitting right around his career high Eubanks currently at 129 his career high is number 120 but Chris a career high in victories here this season he's won 40 matches 40 and 25 overall on the year has now made a challenger final uh in back-to-back weeks and you know he's now made six total challenger quarterfinals overall all of them coming since the start of June it's been a really strong ending to Chris's season and you look for him to start last year you know has zero main draw wins to defend until Indian Wells where he reached the second round and then a round of 16 Phoenix Challenger but he played a lot of qualifying matches to start this season and unfortunately didn't have too much success that said low-hanging fruit for Chris Eubanks he's essentially got the first three four five months of the season to play around with and two, three big results. He's on the precipice of the top 100, folks. And look, 26 years old, his frame has always was always going to take time, right? Six, seven. I love you, Chris. He is a string bean. He's got my body where, again, it's very light. I mean, he's strong as hell, lean as hell. See him in person. I'm not questioning his work ethic. I'm not questioning his strength. He just is tall and skinny, and it takes some time to truly get the most out of that frame that said he's always had the weapons the serve has always been easy the forehand has always been a cannon his strength and swing through the backhand has gotten so much better he is much more comfortable as a volleyer now it's much more instinctual than it once was and I'll take that serve as a you know again and take my chances in any match I play and so Keep an eye out for Chris Eubanks' top 100 watch in what was a really fun Knoxville Challenger event. And by the way, action 
continues next week in Champaign. Shelton's in the draw. Eubanks is in the draw. Sandgren, who's still alive in the race, he's in the draw. Everyone's in the draw, folks. You got to keep watching the tennis as we roll on here in November. With that said, that's your look at Sunday's action in the pro tennis world. Now, I know there were other challenger events. Listen to the GSP tomorrow. Cracked Records contributors Damien Kust, Jakob Bobro, break it all down, of course. We'll get into the ATP Tour Finals with even more depth next week as we are joined by a first-time mini break podcast guest with that said a shout out as always to our super producer daniel westoff who has a of an editing job to do day in day out of course we've got our cracked interviews podcast rocking and rolling tanner stump fiona crawley brandon nakashima Ellen Perez, so many great guests of late. You can hear from them all over on that Cracked Interviews podcast feed. And, of course, for the immediate updates, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, we are at Cracked Rackets. You want to follow me directly, I am at A.L. Gruskin. Shout out as well, by the way, to our friends at Tennis Point, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With that said, for our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, and from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break. And we will talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.